We shall proceed to session three, titled Contestation and Choices, which discusses what decolonization means, how there was an ideological struggle to define the identity and destiny of Singapore, and what choices were made among the parties involved and the people of Singapore in that struggle for independence. The two speakers on this panel are Professor Gayam Prakash, who is Dayton Stockton Professor of History at the Department of History, Princeton University, and Professor Tan Tai Yong, who is President of Yale and US College and IPS's sixth SR Nathan Fellow for the Study of Singapore. To moderate the session, we are happy to have Mr. Ho Kong Pin, Executive Chairman of Banyan Tree Holdings Limited, who was IPS's first SR Nathan Fellow for the Study of Singapore in 2014. As we did earlier, we opened this session with a video clip of young Singaporeans reflecting on the Singapore Bicentennial, and this time, around a team of self-determination. After that, the time will be handed over to Mr. Ho to introduce the topic at hand and to invite the speakers to present their views. Please give your attention to the screen. Thank you. how we overcome SARS as one united nation, I think that's still very relevant now because now Singapore, we still face a lot of problems and most of the time, Singaporeans will like come together as one nation instead of one individual or one uh, group of people. I think it's very remarkable that Singapore had such resilience to power through different uh, crises. I think we always find a way to make good out of a situation and capitalize on what others might think are disruptors, which allow us to uh, progress in the end. A major challenge right now is climate change because as the world warms and uh, climate gets very erratic, yeah, for example, we have rising sea levels which might put Singapore at risk, especially because we're a low-lying city. I think there's a statistic I read that if the sea level rose by one meter, Singapore would be uh, very heavily affected. I think maybe like 30% or something of the land area would be uh, rendered unusable. I read on the news, basically they said like, like a lot of straws were used like in a year, then it basically impacted like the environment a lot. Recently I read a newspaper article about how the landfills in Singapore are like slowly become full and that's not good news for us because that means the garbage will start to overflow and our seas will be polluted which will then result in our drinking water being polluted as well. Do it, uh, keep it local first. We could try to maybe reduce our um, greenhouse gas production. We could also maybe try um, to um, like recycle more, so to reduce wastage. I hope that Singapore is going to be like very eco-friendly, not like using like, a lot of plastic. What I would like to see for Singapore personally is a very eco-friendly. Um, like plastic-free Singapore that's even cleaner and greener than it is now. And yeah, like very little cars on the road, people taking public transport more, and um, like we drastically cut down on our usage of plastic. Maybe in the future, there could be like driverless cars or, or like flying cars, even uh, like as the common mode of transport and like Maybe the, there'll be more electric like stations around the 
around Singapore, so like it will be more convenient for like everyone. Although we have a very advanced technology, and I do feel that generations are getting smarter and smarter in knowing how to harness that technology, but I do feel it is still important for Singapore to educate the elderly about how to use technology as it is changing, it's always evolving. I would like it to be very like technology advanced, so it would be very easy for people to go and come. And like you can also teach the elderly people like how to use technology and everything in an easy and simple way. It also helps like the cleaners to like lessen down their work so they won't be so exhausted every day. Uh, good, good morning. Good morning to all of you and welcome to the uh, third session today. The first two sessions dealt primarily with the first 100 years of Singapore. Uh, for the second session, I think some of us older people in the room could say we were actually in the thick of it or were, st were still alive during the time that this is being discussed. For younger people in the room, much of what will be discussed will probably be stories that you've heard from your parents and grandparents. But uh, in particular, I actually liked, I normally don't like taglines to conferences, but I thought this particular tagline for this session was very, very apt to be calling it contestation and choices because it counters the general historical bias towards history as a linear narrative that at points in time, people actually knew what they were going to do. You had good people, bad people, good guys went out over bad guys, and that's what history is all about. But when you're in the thick of history, history is actually not ever predetermined. And the players in history face great contest of ideas. They have to make difficult choices, often guesses, without knowing how history is going to develop. We will be setting the stage for discussing about the future of Singapore with our two eminent speakers talking about the whole period of decolonization. But I think just to already prepare the ground for some future discussions, I think there are parallels, clear parallels between what the founding fathers of Singapore had to face with decolonization and today's case. Decolonization was a global movement sweeping the world with many different visions and different leaders having different ideas as to what decolonization should mean. If we look back in history and look at the players who were gathered at the famous Bandung Conference at the Non-Aligned Movement, you had countries from Cuba and Yugoslavia, Indonesia, and Singapore, all having different ideas of how the world should look like after decolonization. And it was a huge contest of ideas, which our own leadership had to, as Deng Xiaoping rightly said about making decisions in history, our own leadership had to cross the river by feeling the stones. There was no playbook as to what the future should be like. Today, we face pretty much the same situation with a, with a ruptured world facing rapid deglobalization, not decolonization, but deglobalization, with a real struggle of ideas also between those who espouse liberal democracies and those who espouse radical populism. How do Leaders today, including our young leaders, not only our four-generation leadership, but all the young people in the world, how do we make 
And how do you make choices going ahead with a great contest of ideas in the world today? And I think this therefore brings to life the past two sessions where we discussed the history of Singapore. We placed Singapore within the context of our neighbors going back a few hundred years. Now we're going back to the immediate past for us to understand the decisions and the environment and the contest of ideas and the choices made in the immediate past so that we can actually understand better how we should discuss the future. So the first person to speak on this will be Professor Prakash, who will also will talk about decolonization and various aspects of it, and then followed by uh, Professor Tan Tai Yong, who will not talk about Yale and US, but will talk about uh, decolonization. I promise. Yes. I couldn't help but put that little bit in there. So Professor Prakash, please. Hello. Uh, <clears throat> thank you all for coming. Um, given uh, the brilliant presentations that I've heard since yesterday and today, uh, and given the level of engagement and excitement of the audience, it's been almost, uh, not almost, certainly been worth it to travel halfway across the world and be here in Singapore. So I'm really looking forward to the discussion today. I have to apologize, I don't have slides and I don't have any visual aids, but I do have words. Uh, and so I'll ask you to uh, focus on my words. And, and I have an argument. I have an argument to make about decolonization. And my argument is, that in the history of decolonization and the post-colonial moment, what is central, what looms large, is the impact of World War II and its aftermath. I want to suggest that the war and the post-war upheavals vitally shaped not only the nature of decolonization, but also the forms of post-colonial states that came into being and their agendas. It wasn't as if the war was just a prelude to decolonization. Uh, I, I want to argue that the war and its aftermath deeply affected colonized societies and left a lasting imprint on what was to come after. Now, historians have long recognized the impact of World War II on the post-war order in Europe and in the emergence of <clears throat> the Cold War. But it, its impact on Asia was also profound. The war was uh, longer and ultimately bloodier than uh, Europe's civil war in Southeast Asia. It was the most general conflict since uh, the 13th century uh, Mongol invasions and a more intense battle for supremacy than the 17th century battle between European companies for supremacy. In the crescent extending, extending from Bengal through Burma and stretching across the Malay Peninsula and reaching Sumatra in the Dutch uh, East Indies, the conflict claimed around 24 million lives, 
in lands occupied by Japan. In addition, there were three million Japanese casualties, and there were about three and a half million people in India who perished during war-related famines. A war of such scale, claiming so many different lives and persisting for so long could not but have deep effects. And I want to outline some of those effects today. So the first, I want to suggest that the war encompassing all of Asia meant a far-reaching and a determining disruption and dismantling of the global economy forged under the European empires. This was particularly true of the British Empire with its sway uh, over the Indian Ocean and South China Sea, uh, and of course extending to Suez. Under the British umbrella, vast numbers of people had crossed boundaries to seek livelihood and build a global economy uh, under imperial umbrella. Traders, plantation laborers, artisans, shopkeepers, moneylenders, and clerical staff belonging to different communities could be found in cities and countryside of Britain, Britain's Asian empire. It was this world that was violently disrupted by the Japanese in 1941. The British tried to rejig the, uh, their war efforts uh, after the fall of Singapore in 1942. This was mainly to support their war efforts, but the connections and mobility patterns across different regions were snapped. Diasporic communities that lived throughout Southeast Asia while maintaining constant connections with their homelands in China and India were now stranded. Thousands of refugees, their livelihoods destroyed by the war and fleeing from, from conflicts, swarmed into cities as squatters. Under these circumstances, boundaries hardened, a process that the later formation of post-colonial nation states would reinforce. So one impact I want to highlight is the disruption of pre-war mobility uh, under the imperial economy and the hardening of boundaries throughout South and Southeast Asia. I'll return to this point later on because it's important. The second effect of the war uh, and Japan's defeat and the attempted reconquest by European powers between 1945 and 49 was that they sparked political imaginations and projects of different kinds throughout Asia. Japan's uh, attack uh, had destroyed the myth of European uh, superiority. The British Empire was snapped. The fall of Singapore in February 1942, followed by the disastrous helter-skelter retreat from Burma uh, by the British before the advancing Japanese army, stripped the British of its prestige. Equally, the lightning defeat of the Dutch forces, uh, culminating with the fall of Batavia in March 1942, dealt a final blow to Dutch pretensions with their own metropolitan government then in exile in London. The British Raj survived in, in India, but only by crushing the 1942 Quit India movement under Mahatma Gandhi. But the cost of suppressing a widespread rebellion was high. 
As the British pressed military and police forces into action, the Raj was now an occupying force, besieged by a, uh, a kind of resentful population on the ground. Indeed, an air of restlessness was uh, apparent throughout Asia from around 44, 45, 46, 47. As Japan destroyed uh, Europe's uh, or European uh, administrative ap apparatus, old patterns of authority lay shattered. Social and political upheavals gripped Asia. Its urban population grew, as did the membership in trade unions that organized a rising number of workers. Requisitions for the war had created shortages of commodities for ordinary people. Spiraling prices, hoarding, black marketing of scarce goods, and wartime profiteering enriched businessmen and industrialists, but depressed the standard of life of the salaried classes and, and the poor. As both Europeans and Japanese reached deep down into the colonized societies to mobilize resources for the war, the state became even more deeply involved in the lives of ordinary people. The mobilization for the war changed societies and it also transformed the nature of politics. Uh, and this is when you find through the late 1940s uh, uh, mass politics emerging as a powerful force throughout Asia. Philip Talbot, uh, an American journalist <clears throat> who reported from India from about 1938 to 1950, uh, <clears throat> wrote in early 1956, he wrote, the war has introduced new and strange elements, excited political loyalties and enmities, and intensified struggles for power. The stage setting for the Indian drama has changed almost out of recognition since 1939. Now the old pattern of institutional politics was not dead, but mass politics sharply rose to surface by 1945. That's when European powers tried to reestablish uh, control after Japan's defeat in 1945. They faced implacable opposition on the street they confronted a range of politicized groups. Uh, Chris Bailey and Tim Harper in their wonderful book, uh, Forgotten Wars, uh, say, quote, this was Asia's revolutionary moment when many previously disempowered groups in society, women, the young, workers, and peasants, took political initiative to rebuild their communities, salvage their livelihoods, and regain dignity. Mao in China, Sukarno and revolutionary youth in Indonesia, sultans, radicals, and communist insurgents in Malaya, Aung San in uh, Burma, they all appealed to the masses and transformed uh, politics. A sense of epochal change was in the air as a convulsive mix of nationalism, communism, and ideals of social and religious freedom tugged at the populace. The world appeared on the brink of being turned upside down. What defined this moment was a conscious sense of novelty, of trying to bring newness into the political world. Jawaharlal Nehru, speaking at the inaugural Asian Relations Conference in New Delhi in March 1947, said, 
we stand at the end of an era and on the threshold of a new period of history. And in the decade following the end of World War II, leaders across South and Southeast Asia began to found states that would express the mood, this new mood of a fresh start. Central to this post-colonial moment was a strong belief that decolonization was not only a matter of change in the bilateral relationship between the metropole and the colony, but it was a world-changing event. The end of empire, it was hoped, would produce a fundamental restructuring of the world. It would inaugurate a new phase of history. This is what some, is uh, sometimes referred to as the spirit of Bandung. Richard Wright, the African-American writer who was present at Bandung, uh, wrote, it was the kind of meeting that no anthropologist, no sociologist, no political scientist would ever have dreamt of staging. It was too simple, too elementary, cutting through outer layers of disparate social and political and cultural facts down to the bare brute resident, uh, residues of human existence, races, religions, continents. Only brown, black, and yellow men who had long been made agonizingly self-conscious under the rigors of colonial rule of their race and religion could have felt the need for such a meeting. There was something extra-political, extra-social, extra-human about it. End of quote. Indeed, there was something utopian, something extra-political, extra-social, almost extra-human about this effort to remake the experience of colonial domination, the basis for a post-colonial transformation. Franz Fanon's notion of revolutionary national culture shared something of Wright's sense of the extra-human. For he to envision that the exertion of sheer will would produce a, a global radical national culture of decolonization. This vision of uh, this vision of decolonization was a response to mass politics and popular hopes kindled in the aftermath of World War II. Nehru, who was released from the uh, British colonial prison in 1945, spoke about seeing the people's eyes lit with hopes and expectations. But this hope was also mixed with foreboding. For if the war had brought mass politics on the stage, it had also kindled a range of conflicting ideas, identities, and ideologies. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the later founder of Pakistan, who had retreated to London in 1930, uh, disgusted with the mass politics of Mahatma Gandhi, returned to India in 1934. He shed his barrister's robes, shed his three-piece suits, uh, donned a sherwani, and took to streets uh, during the war uh, campaigning for a Muslim homeland in British India. India achieved independence uh, in 1947 amidst the carnage and displacements of partition and a threat of a communist insurrection. Equally, violence and settling of scores dominated the politics of Indonesia and Burma, not to mention other parts of Asia. Largely seen as the lackeys of the Dutch, the Malay royal families of the Sumatran coast would be driven from their palaces and killed by mixed forces of revolutionaries. 
This terrified their regal kin across the straits who were far more anxious about the Malayan Communist Party than the returning British protectors. In West Java and Sulawesi, meanwhile, remnants of Islamic militia would coalesce into Darul Islam movement that sought avowedly uh, a more religious form of the nation. They sometimes fought the returning Dutch and sometimes battled the Republican forces of Sukarno. The hopes, of, the hopes and dreams of world-changing decolonization then appeared amidst the turmoil of mass politics unleashed during and after the war. And it's very important to keep both these two contexts in mind in understanding what follows. And if you keep this essential context in mind, several developments uh, in the nature of post-colonial states become understandable. First, the political and social upheavals during and after World War II made the nation state the dominant form of decolonization. Globally, the tide was turning towards ethnically homogenous nation states. By this time, the League of Nations in, uh, international law-driven approach to protect minorities had run its course. If any ambiguity remained, the war cleared it, and Hitler's brutal treatment of the Jews, followed by post-war plight of refugees and stateless persons, destroyed the League's strategy of uh, protecting minorities with legal safeguards. Those rendered stateless realized that the loss of national rights was identical with human rights. To have the right to have rights, as uh, Hannah Arendt said, you had to be a member of a nationality. This consolidated the idea that the state should represent an ethnically homogenous territory. Accordingly, more than a million ethnic Germans were deported to West Germany from Czechoslovakia after the war. The partition of Palestine and the establishment of Israel also followed the same logic, namely that the Jews could enjoy full political rights only in a state of their own. The immediate effect of this nation-state logic was to render the Palestinians as refugees and displaced persons, replicating what had already occurred in British India. Of course, there were currents pushing against this global tide towards nation-state. Uh, Leopold Senghor in French West Africa, Aimé Césaire in the Caribbean, struggled to seek a form of federation uh, and not nation-states. To them, post-colonial federations of France and its former colonies, rather than nation-states, offered real possibilities of freedom and equality. I believe a federation, of course, was also in the air in Malaya and Singapore. Uh, but soon, the politics of decolonization defeated these alternatives. Afraid that they would become colonized to, by their former colonies, the French National Assembly offered self-government instead of federation to its African territories. This is not what Senghor had wanted. And he responded by forming its uh, Mali Federation in 1959, but it only lasted a year. The nation-state had, uh, the nation-state logic had won. So this is one impact of, uh, of the war, this drive towards uh, nation-state sovereignty. And driving the logic of this homogeneously defined uh, nation-state 
in India was, of course, the Hindu-Muslim violence and the uprooting of millions by partition. Uh, and then there were these other partitions which I uh, referred to. This is the uh, restrictions on the mobility of migrants in Southeast Asia who used to regularly travel back and forth between Malaya and, and Tamil Nadu and so on. Now they had to choose. They had to choose which nation they, they could belong to. If the war and the post-colonial, uh, post-war upheavals placed the nation state at the center of decolonization, they also drove post-colonial elites to centralize state power. And you can see in this the sort of uh, uh, the incipient movement and the, uh, and the possibility for state authoritarianism. We see this process in Indonesia. Uh, the newly declared Republic of Indonesia was uh, not merely rent by Islamist and secularist tensions, but also by communist insurgents. Such divisions formed the background of Sukarno's centralization of authority by 1957 and military coup in 1965. Centralization of power was a response to the turmoil and conflict that accompanied decolonization. It is also the case that the wartime mobilization of resources and soldiers had enhanced state capacity. And so with this added capacity, centralization of state power was to, supposed to secure national unity. In this turmoil, what was uppermost in the minds of the leaders of these uh, nation, new, newly emerging nation states was to secure uh, national unity. But it was also, there was another aim, and that was to respond to the mass aspirations, the hopes of decolonization. And so they wanted a state, a centralized state with enough power that could deliver on social transformation and uh, you know, introduce economic change. I, you know, I want to just uh, refer very briefly to the experience of constitution making in India between 1947 and 1949 in Delhi. The members met in the constituent assembly while the streets outside were full of bloodshed, of Hindu-Muslim bloodshed. It's a very surreal scene where the members of the constituent assembly had to actually get curfew passes in order to uh, go to the Constituent Assembly and decide on the Constitution. Amidst this violence, Indian Constitution spoke in two voices. It spoke in the voice of the administrator and it spoke in the voice of the constitutional uh, rights. The voice of the administrator harked back to the colonial days. And in fact, the Indian Constitution imported 80% of the colonial constitution, including rights of, you know, including powers of preventive detention, emergency powers, and so on. That was the voice of the colonial administrator, which faced with the sort of alien population had to depend on state power. But the Indian constitution and the Indian administrator was not a colonial administrator. It had also introduced adult suffrage. And so the idea was that this combination of state power uh, which would ensure law and order but would also give it power to introduce social changes 
would be the way for uh, proper post-colonial transformation. Ironically, uh, the chief architect of this constitution was the so leader of the so-called untouchables, B.R. Ambedkar. And in 1949, just when he would introduce the constitution, um, he said, on 26th of January 1950, we are going to an enter a life of contradictions. In politics, we will have equality and equality and in social and economic life, we will have inequality. In politics, we will be recognizing the principle of one man, one vote, and one vote, one value. In our social and economic life, however, we shall, by reason of our social and economic structure, continue to deny the principle of one man, one value. How long shall we continue to live this life of contradictions? Now, I'm referring this to India, but I think one can make this point more generally about uh, Asia in general, that there were these sort of uh, tendencies towards state centralization and, and the hope that the cent state centralization would achieve social and economic change. One consequence of this life of contradiction was that when faced with mass unrest over failure to deliver its promises, the state increasingly resorted to authoritarian measures. We can witness this first in Prime Minister Indira Gandhi's declaration of internal emergency in 1975, and we can see this in actually the present Modi government, which has also resorted to various state powers to carry its war against so-called anti-nationals. This reliance on authoritarian measures to control and rule is not primarily due to the character of these individual leaders. The basic cause lies in the nature of post-colonial regimes that came to power in the wake of World War II. And this is also why the post-colonial states failed to deliver in its promises. Now that is another story which Professor Tong will take up. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor Prakash. Um, I think you've succeeded uh, in a very difficult task, which is to, to really capture in a short time across the broad sweep of history the excitement that captured all of the decolonized world in the immediate post-war period in your quotation from Nehru, your reference to Bandung, and so on. I think you've captured very well the promise of decolonization. As we know, the promise and the reality of decolonization uh, were not the same thing, as we are now facing also the promise of globalization and the reality and the outcome of globalization are not the same thing. And in some ways, I think for the younger people in the room, you, we all remember the saying that only those who don't know history are doomed to always repeat it. Um, what we have now with Professor Tan is to narrow the focus uh, beyond the broad sweep of the decolonized world, which you spoke about so, so well, and to give us maybe a somewhat smaller platform as to how decolonization affected Southeast Asia, uh, Singapore in particular, the contest of ideas that was swirling around this part of the world and in Singapore, the choices that were made by our leaders, the dilemmas that they faced in order to not just 
look at the past as a dead subject, but in order for us to understand from the past what could guide us into the future. Professor Tan, please. Good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you, um, Chairman, for uh, introducing uh, the subject. Uh, we've heard from uh, Gyan Prakash about how the Second World War was uh, fundamental in transforming the world. Uh, it led to the dismantling of the empires, um, changing the world order, the, old, the world economic and political order, the rise of mass politics, the rise of new nation states. And then uh, this period was going to shade into the part that I'm going to be talking about, which is the period post-war. And one would think that, you know, well, the old order has been shattered, a new order will rise to take its place, and then this would be a very smooth process. But I'm going to show you that, especially in the case of Southeast Asia and Singapore, it was anything uh, but straightforward. Well, I'm going to start with a very broad frame first and then try to bring it back to uh, British Southeast Asia and then to Singapore. And that is to then address the two themes uh, of this panel, contestations and choice. So the first is, well, the, the Second World War was followed by the Cold War, as we all know, right? This was the period where the Americans and the Allies felt that there was this communist bloc that was emerging not just in Europe, Churchill referred to the Iron Curtain descending on Europe in 1946, but also seen in other parts of Asia. In Southeast Asia in particular, you had the emergency in Malaya from 1948, you had uh, threats of communist uh, uprisings in uh, Burma, and then you had the Hak Palahap uprisings in the Philippines. So there was a series of events that were happening on the outskirts of, of the Western world, as it were, that seemed to suggest that there was this big push by the communist bloc uh, against uh, the Americans and the Allies. And this uh, was something that uh, was of great concern to the Americans, and the idea in their defense was not so much to fight another war, but to contain and, if possible, push back the communist bloc. And this was the context of the Cold War. And please put this in your mind because it's going to inform many of the decisions that were made subsequently in Southeast Asia on the kinds of political changes that would follow from the 1940s. Now, against the context of the Cold War, we are also witnessing a developments in the region because as Gian suggested, this was not so much a change of regime or a change of power uh, from the Europeans to the locals, but this was the period where people started expressing the ideas of what the new world would look like after the end of empire. It was not just about winning elections or centralizing control, but it was in articulating what new world they want to be part of. And this was a combination of anti-colonialism, so there was a negative factor, but also of positive factors like nationalism, self-determination, how would you define yourself as a people? And when boundaries were drawn, how would you then fit into those boundaries and see yourself as a kind of a, 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 a affiliated group of people with common identities. It was also about idealism, about wanting to bring about a fairer world, a more equitable world, to replace the old exploitative world of European colonialism. So socialism, communism, these were very attractive ideals. And you, young especially, saw in this period uh, chances to now create a new world in which they can own, that belongs to them, and that will promise them 
a much brighter future. So that's the, the kind of regional developments that you see uh, being expressed in places like Indochina, in Indonesia, and then finding articulation in places like Bandung, where there's talk of creating a middle path, uh, neither Soviet nor American, but non-alignment. And these were uh, ideals and visions articulated by the so-called leaders of the new world, the third world. And then domestically, um, within each country, you also witness um, reactions to the privations of war, to the disruptions of wars, to wanting to get on with lives, to wanting jobs, to wanting to rebuild, and then deciding, well, what next? Because when you were once a member of the, or a subject of the British Empire or of the Indonesia, or of the British or, or the Dutch Empire, now you may have to define yourself differently and what would your place in the new world look like. So these were the kinds of contexts um, that shaped the post-war um, world of decolonization against a larger overlay of the Cold War. I'm now gonna bring us back to uh, British Southeast Asia. Now this is a very simple map showing the areas where the British still had control. Of course, Malaya, Singapore, and then the North Borneo Territories and Brunei. So that's the extent of the British Empire in Southeast Asia. Now, although some people would like to um, imagine that the British were actually pushed out of Southeast Asia by the uprising of anti-colonialism and nationalism. The truth is that the British controlled the pace of decolonization in Southeast Asia. So this was not a reaction or a response to a mass uprising that, was, that were witnessed in other parts of Southeast Asia, but this was a very paced, controlled kind of transfer of power done on British terms. Now, the British could decide in Southeast Asia when and how to decolonize. So they, they were not really in a hurry because Southeast Asia, especially Malaya, was still very uh, important economically for the British, especially during that period because of tin and rubber, big uh, money earners, and the British needed that. Now, unlike India, uh, South Asia, where towards uh, 1947, the British India Audit of Empire had decided that it was not worth <coughs> keeping uh, India because of all the troubles, and they were having difficulties sending British troops and British administrators there, and India was on a cusp of a mess, um, not an uprising, but nationalism had latched on, and it was time, it was felt, uh, to let India go. And um, the British Prime Minister post-war, Clement Attlee, decided that this made more sense um, to Britain, given its economic conditions, but the trick was to keep India as a productive member of the Commonwealth. So this was the thinking at that time. But in other parts of uh, the British Empire in Southeast Asia, there was really no hurry. So the British could take their time and plan. And they could decide when and how to decolonize. Now, the map that I shown showed different parts of uh, the British Empire. So the idea was, well, what do we do with each of these colonies? Um, specifically, they had different concerns. So for Singapore, for instance, the naval base was critical, and the British wanted to hold on to this strategic naval base because between Cape, 
Cape, uh, Cape Town and uh, Sydney and Yokohama, there was nothing in between, and Singapore occupied that space. So security concerns was primary. Now, then what do you do with uh, Malaya, which is undergoing uh, emergency? And the British decided that the best way to take the sails out of the communists was to promise independence because during the Baling talks, uh, the MCP said that without independence, they were not going to go for peace. So the way to help the Tonku and his allies was to promise independence, which was delivered in 1957. Then what do you do with the North Borneo territories? They were politically underdeveloped. They were governed, except for the Brunei Sultanate, one was governed by a family, the White Rajas, another by a trading company, politically underdeveloped. So you had to find ways of bringing them all together. And the British came up in the 1950s with the idea of what they called the grand design, the grand design. The grand design was circulated in memos, uh, which articulated a vision for the colonies of Southeast Asia to be all grouped into one super federation anchored on Malaya. Um, this was the British plan, but they did not lay out a timetable or how th this would be uh, effected, and they faced a lot of opposition on the ground. Singapore was very keen. They wanted to be part of Malaya. The Malayans were not keen to take on Singapore at that time, and the Borneo territories, interestingly, although politically underdeveloped, um, under the paternalistic care of the colonial officers, felt that this was not the time to bring the Borneo territories into the grand design because they would be swallowed up. So the phrase was that they would be switching um, British colonialism for Malayan colonialism. And the officers on the ground felt that uh, in 1960 that the Borneo territories were not ready for any form of political development for another 15 to 20 years. So there were all these tensions um, that were being played out as the British considered their grand design. Then the question is, who do you transfer power to? There were different groups contesting each other. Who do you transfer power to? But throughout all this, the end of empire playbook for the British was very clear. One is you always look for reliable local allies to whom you can transfer power to so that you can continue to do businesses with them after formal transfer of power. They did this in Malaya, they were looking for to, do, to do the same in, in Singapore, they'd done it in uh, India and so on. And at the same time, don't go soft. You maintain the levers of power. So all the legislation, the draconian rules that they developed during the emergency were kept. So the preservation of public uh, security and order, internal security, all were still in the hands of the British so that they could control the disruptive elements while cultivating the groups that they could transfer power to. Oops, sorry. Now, so the grand design remained an idea, but eventually morphed into this idea of Malaysia, or Greater Malaysia. Now, if you looked at the concept of Malaysia, it was the coming together of different interests, a convergence of different interests that somehow seemed to fit. So let's look at the British now. For the British, it's very simple. They wanted to keep the naval base in Singapore, they were concerned about the restive population, Chinese population in Singapore. Left-wing populism had gained grounds. They were concerned that the Singaporean Chinese, which is a majority in the island, were all radicalized pro-communist elements, and that if left to, their own, to its own device, Singapore would turn red very quickly. So, and if Singapore becomes communist, the naval base would be lost. So where the British are concerned, maintain Singapore at all costs ensure that it doesn't turn red. 
and then to solve the problems of the politically underdeveloped Borneo territories. Leave them alone, let them amalgamate on their own, or bring them into Malaya. And this was something that the British thought, if there was an anchor, and that anchor would be Malaya, then it would make sense for the Borneo territories to be grouped around this, uh, this uh, core, uh, this bulwark, as it were. The Tonku, as you all know, was not very keen to contemplate um, taking on Singapore. He was keen on Brunei specifically, open to the idea of the Borneo territories, but definitely not interested in Singapore for reasons that I think many of you know. It would disrupt the arithmetic, the racial arithmetic in Malaya by incorporating 1.2 million Chinese, but not just 1.2 million Chinese of, of a certain ethnic group, but radicalized Chinese who would have caused more trouble. And having fought 12 years of the emergency, he was not prepared to have more troubles in his hands. So for a long time, he kept Singapore at bay. But then he was persuaded by his advisors that, look, Singapore is Lee Kuan Yew and the PAP were doing badly. And if you, lift, if you left Singapore out, the PAP is going to be defeated, or the moderate PAP will be defeated, and the left will rise, and then you're going to end up having a Cuba in your backyard. So what do you want to do? Take Singapore in and deal with the problem, or leave it out, have a Cuba in your backyard, and then it becomes an international uh, situation. So I think towards the end, 1961, he was persuaded better deal with the Singapore situation internally. And then, of course, Lee Kuan Yew, who led the PAP in a very decisive victory in 1959, campaigned on the platform of bringing Singapore into Malaya. Now, here was a choice. Singapore could either uh, advocate to become a nation-state in 1963 when it was due for a constitutional change, um, like all other former colonies, or become part of a larger federation. And Lee Kuan Yew and his PAP decided that the most viable way for Singapore to progress, to survive, would be to be part of a larger federation. Two reasons, essentially. One was economic. Singapore needed to industrialize. It needed to build a manufacturing base. Um, its population was growing at 4 to 5% annually. Um, its main, the mainstay of, its economy, it, it, of the economy was entrepreneur trade. An entrepreneur trade was declining in significance in the 60s as more countries became independent and started building their own tariffs, so you can't just do a trade like that. So it was critical for Singapore, uh, if it were to build an industrial base, to have markets. And the most obvious market lay up north, the common market. And this was what Lee Kuan Yew and his, uh, and his cabinet members wanted a common market in Malaya where there would be no tariffs so that the products of Singapore could be sold there. And this was the most natural choice. So that was the, the economic argument. But there was also a political side to this, and that Lee Kuan Yew knew at that time um, the PAP was not on a strong wicket and that it was actually weakening by the day. Two by-elections in 1961 in Hong Lim and in Anson saw two straight defeats uh, by, uh, British, uh, by the PAP candidates. And the left-wing forces, which had joined the PAP in, in, in the mid-1950s as a marriage of convenience, was trying to break free. And this was the point where merger became a point of contention, a contestation, because the left-wing elements knew that once Singapore went into Malaysia, uh, the Malayans or the Malaysian Prime Minister will not be kind to them. They will be walloped. So I think they were concerned that if Singapore were to go in, it must have full capacity 
to take control of the security levers and not be at the mercy of um, an anti-communist um, leadership in Kuala Lumpur. So Lee Kuan Yew basically felt that the only way to control or to defeat his political enemies was for Singapore to join Malaysia. But there was a more fundamental reason, and that fundamental reason was that he knew his ground was thinning all the time, he was weakening, because the British would never give Singapore independence unless it was part of Malaysia. Now, if the British would not leave, then Lee's own anti-colonial credentials would be hurt. And the communists or the left wing will continue to drive the point that, look, this anti-colonialism is a wrong, is a bad thing, and yet look at this prime minister who's weak, who cannot deliver. So the only way he could deliver independence and take the winds of the sails of the communists was to deliver independence, and he knew that he could only deliver independence in Malaysia. So these were the, the factors, and they all came together very nicely, the British interests, the Tunku, and Lee Kuan Yew. Now, of course, within Singapore, there were further contestations because, as I had explained earlier, Lee Kuan Yew had uh, one vision of wanting to take Singapore, a choice, actually, of taking Singapore into Malaya and achieving independence from that. But he was faced with a very formidable foe in the left wing. Uh, while they were one party up to 1961, there was a split in 1961. And with that split, the PAP was weakened considerably. I mean, I've got some figures here. The split, which resulted in the formation of a new party called the Barisan Socialists, cost the PAP nearly 80% of members. And the Barisan Socialists was then a, a wildly popular uh, party. And this was a point where, if one could think of possibilities in history, the PAP could have lost the election, if not for, Mal if not for Malaysia. If Lee Kuan Yew had called an election in 1962, for instance, uh, without going into Malaysia, I think it is very likely that the PAP that we know of today would no longer exist or badly defeated. So that was a kind of a turning point. And this particular development terrified the Tongku. It terrified the Tongku, who felt that if Singapore were lost, then all the problems that he had been told about, the Cuba in his backyard or more communist problems in Singapore, would arise. And how would he have dealt with that? So um, the British didn't want this to happen. Lee Kuan Yew, in a way, was fighting for his own political life, and the Tunku, who really didn't want to have this problem before Singapore um, joined uh, Malaya, came together and decided to take action, and that, was, that led to the arrest and the dissemination of the left-wing forces, and basically that paved the way for Singapore to enter into uh, Malaysia and become part of the Federation. Now, the point here is not so much about um, who did right and who did wrong and who was right and who was wrong because you know it's very easy uh, now with hindsight to say that this thing should not have been done or that should not have been done but as Mr. Ho pointed out to us that when people were making decisions in 1963 or 1962 or 1961 they were faced with stark choices they were faced with options and they had to decide which is the best option to take given uh, the consideration of all these factors coming together, the survival of Singapore, political survival of a political party, what was best for the British, what was best for the Malaysians. And one must be very clear that um, without the arrest of these left-wing elements, 
merger would not have happened. The Tungku had stipulated that as a non-negotiable where Malaysia was concerned. So you had contesting visions of Singapore, where Singapore should be headed, what Singapore should look like. And this is not just, as I said, another regime change where you had an elections, you won or you lost, and then you come back in the contest. This was a very fundamental decision of what the future of Singapore would look like. A left, a left-leaning, communist, socialist kind of model, or one that would be open to connecting with um, the rest of the world, or one that would be prepared to be part of a larger uh, federation embracing uh, Malayan identity. And this is what happened in the 50s in preparation, in the run-up to merger. And that was Lee Kuan Yew created the conditions for Singaporeans to think of themselves. Now, the word Singaporean was problematic for people in Singapore to think of themselves as Malayans at that time. So Malay language, the Yang, the Patuan, Negara, a Malayan Educational Bureau, all these were done in preparation, not of becoming a Singaporean person, but of becoming a Malayan person. And I think this is an important point to note. So here was a sudden shift, right? All of a sudden, out of colonialism, you emerge as an independent state, but not so independent because you were part of a federation. So this was what happened. Uh, 1963, the colonies that you see shaded earlier became a super federation called Malaysia. But one part was missing, and that is Brunei. What happened to Brunei? So I could give you another lecture on Brunei, but just uh, suffice it to say, uh, the Brunei Sultan was very clever. I think he didn't want to be part of this because why would he sacrifice his oil wealth, you know, his independence, his royal status to be part of a larger federation? But he played along because he wasn't sure if the British would really stand up and defend him if he uh, were to face political problems. And then um, there was an uprising in 1962. The, uh, the, pe the uh, People's Party of Brunei, Party Rakyat, led by Azari, staged a revolution against Malaysia. Uh, the Brunei, of course, distance, uh, the southern distance himself, the British came in, and within weeks, that rebellion was squashed. Now, this reassured the Sultan that the British would not leave him to hang if he were to face political problems. And this, in a way, fortified his belief that he was better off being on his own. So just on the eve of the signing of the Malaysian agreement, the Sultan decided not to come in and decided that he would stay out. And that's why you have this particular configuration today of having an East Malaysia, but Brunei not in the picture. Now, Singapore thought that it had achieved its political ambitions and goals and all the planning and becoming a Malayan person by entering into Malaysia in 1963, but we all know that this was a very short-lived kind of a marriage. Intractable differences surfaced between KL and Singapore. Um, I've written a book on the lead-up to the merger in which I've explained in great detail the difficulties in the negotiations from the concept of citizenship to the collection of taxes, um, to the kinds of special deals that were made that Singapore would only have num a smaller number of seats in the, uh, in the KL a parliament in return for some independence that you would control education and labor and so on. So it was a special deal. It was, Singapore was not taken into Malaysia as a full state, but on certain special conditions. And these problems started to surface when Singapore was in Malaysia. And this led 
to a lot of recriminations between um, the AMNO leaders and Lee Kuan Yew in particular, and also the PAP. And it all revolved around two fundamental ideological positions. One was the special rights of the Malays as, as, as articulated in the, in the Malayan constitution, constitution. And then the PAP being more aristocratic, multicultural, arguing that there should be, we should build a Malaysia for Malaysians, irrespective of race and religion. So that was, the, that was a fundamental difference. And of course, there were political differences. Um, some of the Malayan leaders feared Lee Kuan Yew's political ambitions. And um, Lee Kuan Yew had, was attacked mercilessly by the ultras. And there were concerns about communal differences, that he was playing the Chinese card against uh, Malayan uh, positions and all this. And this led to riots and a lot of difficulties. Now, we then have the story that Singapore was told in August or just a month before, 65 to leave. So this is unexpected, this is a shock to the system, and we were all shocked, and Lee Kuan Yew was in tears after that, you know, the, the video showing those things. But actually, the truth is, and this now has surfaced because we have access to new materials, that actually from 19, early 1964, uh, there were members of the Singapore cabinet who had already decided that this was not working. This was not working. So all the political troubles that they were experiencing, common market was not being achieved. The permits that were sent up to KL for approvals were all rejected. So without a common market, which was one of the main reasons why Singapore went in the first place. And then with all these other problems, what's the point of staying in Malaysia? So um, Go King Sui, uh, being the hard-headed economist that he was, was very clear that they had to leave. I think, I believe Mr. Lee was conflicted because on the one hand, he personally believed in Malaysia. So his, his heart was telling him something, but his head was probably telling him that probably Go King Sui was right, so he was conflicted. So he actually allowed Go King Sui to have a series of negotiations with Abdul Razak, Tun Abdul Razak, who was the deputy prime minister to the Tunku. And they worked, they were trying to work out some other possibilities, a looser federation, a confederation, some political arrangements, but it all came to naught. So the idea that uh, separation was sudden and uh, unexpected is probably not historically accurate. I think there was an attempt to solve this problem already, but it basically uh, did not happen, and therefore separation was necessary. Okay, the last point, uh, I know time's out. Um, how has this history shaped our current political environment? Now, yesterday, Ambassador Chan Heng Chi mentioned uh, Winzimir's advice, and I want to revisit those. He gave two, essentially. One, uh, do away with the communists. But this was said in 1961, and as uh, Ambassador Chan said, Lee Kuan Yew said, yeah, easier said than done, right? Because the communists were the, the pro-communists and the left wing were at the height of the power. But I think his point was that if you want economic progress, that kind of system, political system, economic system that are advocated by the left wing, is not going to work. You have to face that. The second was, don't throw the statue of Raffles in the river. But what did that mean symbolically? It meant that you have to embrace your British past, your British legacy, and show the world that despite being a new national government with sovereign status and even with a socialist kind of credentials, you are prepared to open Singapore to the world and trade with the world. That's the only way Singapore was going to survive. So I think Winsemia's advice, in a way, shaped uh, what Singapore decided to do uh, as a post-colonial Asian country, and not to close its doors, but to return to its history to continue engaging the rest of the world. 
Then the Malaysian experience also was very critical. Someone said, a, a, a historian once mentioned that actually Lee Kuan Yew got to create his Malaysian Malaysia in Singapore after the failure of the Malaysian experiment. Because the kinds of uh, ideals, the kinds of principles that he had been advocating, meritocracy, multiculturalism, you know, without affirmative action, these were things that he had advocated and got hammered uh, in uh, Malaysia for advocating those. But in Singapore, he decided that this had to be the case. You, although Singapore was a Chinese majority state, you could not just build Singapore as a Chinese state. That was the way to go. And therefore, those ideals uh, stood with him and defined contemporary or modern Singapore. And finally, the loss of the hinterland. Professor Wang spoke about separation. Well, yes, there was separation, but for maybe 30, 20 years, the, the idea of Malaya as the hinterland was so deeply entrenched because Singapore was a staple port from which tin rubber were all exported. The, the causeway was built in 1923. Uh, roads were built. And Singapore became very much part of the Malayan economy, so to speak. So it was inconceivable in 1946 when with the Malayan Union plan, Singapore was taken out to become a crown colony on its own. So the idea, and this was, I have argued in other lectures, a case of historical amnesia because the idea of the Malayan hinterland came about only in the 1920s, but somehow it got stuck so deeply in our psyche that we believed that we could not do without the hinterland. So there were a lot of worries that, wow, we have lost the hinterland, what do we do? So the idea now was to search for new hinterlands. And in 1972, then Foreign Minister Mr. S. Rajaratnam articulated the idea of Singapore as a global city. In other words, the hinterland is the world now. It's not the region, it's the world. But this was a vision of creating Singapore's openness. And this is ties in then with the Winsemia's advice that that's the only way Singapore is going to survive. So the idea of a global city-state. But I don't believe that that separation was permanent because while Singapore positions itself as a global city-state, it knows that it is rooted in this region. And I think you will continue to see this engagement with Malaysia, with Southeast Asia, but at the same time, positioning ourselves as a global city that stays connected with the rest of the world. I'll end here and I'll be happy to take your questions later on. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Th thank you very much, uh, Professor Prakash, for outlining the, the broader context of the world after decolonization, and Professor Tan for providing the basis for the Singapore platform for discussions. We've come now to actually what in many ways is the, the heart of the session, which is the discussions with the rest of the audience here. Um, in setting the tone for that, I'd just like to make three observations. Uh, the first is that this is not an academic conference. This has not been put on by NUS's historical society, although it may seem to be at times, and that's necessitated by the fact that this is a bicentennial conference and therefore we've had to cover 200 years of history. But this is put on by IPS. It is about policies, and therefore we do encourage people to enable the past to inform discussions about the future. So we welcome discussions, questions, comments about not just the historical references that have been provided by people, but even comments you may have about how the past has informed the future and issues, comments you may want to raise up. Uh, the second point is that this is not strictly Q&A. Uh, this is an opportunity for you to make comments to, as I've mentioned. Um, the, you are not given 20 minutes to make your comments. 
I would say a one-minute comment is fine, but it's not strictly just purely Q&A. While we have very distinguished speakers here, they're not deputy prime ministers or prime ministers, so you're not required to just give a Q&A. You are allowed to make your own comments and observations to which other people can react. We would welcome that. And the third point is that in particular, in order for the past to inform the future, we also would want younger people uh, in this room to raise points about their concerns uh, about the future, their aspirations, and so on. Um, I'm very happy to recognize that um, officially, one person in this room who is over 65 is no longer an Odi, uh, Heng Chi, but I would say that extends to the rest of us here, so I don't need to call the rest of you Odis. I would just simply say the more mature of us here would obviously be dying to make comments, but we also particularly welcome younger people in the room who generally sort of congregate in the back to also make comments, questions, anything else you have to say. Uh, there are microphones located around the room. There are light sticks. Um, oh, I see you're really all queued up. Very good. And I see there, you are younger people. You are not an OD. So please, raise your points now. And anyone else, please come to the mics and say what you'd like to say. Um, I think there's one person here first uh, in the white. Uh, hello, professors. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, my name is Pranav Harish, and I'm a student here at the United World College. And my question is for Professor Prakash. And uh, my question was that, would you say that there's a second age of colonization or a new modern approach of neo-colonization that's emerging with Chinese foreign policy, such as the Belt and Road Initiative, which promises infrastructural developments towards several African nations from where we can draw similarities to how the British were heavily involved in developing industry in colonies like India? And is it simply a cycle of power polarity in our world in which we are now seeing a transition of power from a Western to a more Eastern majority, excluding the case of colonial Japan in World War II? I'm not sure if I would call it uh, neo-colonial. Uh, it is certainly, it, there are kind of echoes in terms of uh, uh, the British Empire, but I think now, um, you know, trade and the market plays such a different role from what it did uh, during the era of, uh, you know, East India Company and so on, uh, is that while one can see this as part of, you know, growing uh, sort of Chinese influence, but uh, I'm not quite sure that, you know, it is the same, you know, trade follow the flag as was the case with, with, the, uh, with the British. Uh, I think uh, it's also the case, I mean, I was saying this uh, earlier, you know, in another conversation, that this is occurring at a time when, uh, you know, global linkages are intimately connected to the market. Um, whereas in the era of kind of British conquest, um, politics was as much uh, at play. Uh, conquest, you know, physical conquest, territorial conquest was as much at play as, you know, trade. So East India Company while, of course, it traded uh, and it was a territorial power, 
but you know, conquest and commerce went together in a way that I don't think uh, is applicable in the same way in you know China's worldwide expansion. So, certainly, the, um, the the question as to whether China's BRI is a form of new colonialism or not is is a very controversial topic to which, in fact, if other people would wish to respond to, please feel free to do so. Um, Kisha, if you will forgive me, I will, you, you have to stand for a few more minutes um, because there are slightly younger people here, but we will come to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's young at heart, as we all know. Um, could I ask that, I think the two of you, um, that side there? Well, I've, I've seen you first there. Uh, the lady here can, can raise your, your question. Um, and then after that, Kisho will go to you so that you don't get too tired standing up as a senior citizen. And there's a person in the back. Is that okay? Then after Kisho yourself, okay? Please. Uh, hi, I'm a student from National University of Singapore. Um, the formation of Singapore uh, in 1965 caused the need to create a Singaporean identity that wasn't present before. But as we move towards being more of a global city-state, um, I'm curious to how much this increasing identity we have as a global citizen is going to affect our Singaporean identity. Yeah. You may take that. Yeah, please. You know, Singapore, as I said in my lecture, never intended, at least in the late 50s, early 60s, to be a separate country on its own. So the whole idea of a Singapore nation, national identity or Singaporeanism uh, came about quite unexpectedly in 1965. So in the, 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 the decades following that, it was, it was two, there were two processes happening at the same time. One was state building. You needed to build a viable state. The other one is nation building. State building you could achieve very quickly. You build houses, you build infrastructure, educational system, a defense force, etc. But identity requires a longer time to build, especially given the, the type of population we have. And this, I always say, nation building is work in progress. But now, as a global city-state that remains open, and you know, when our local population continues to string, and then we have um, uh, internationals coming to, to add to the mix of the Singapore population, um, the idea of nation building also becomes a, a more problematic process. But this does not mean that you know, Singapore is going to give up its national identity or sovereign status anytime soon. That continues to build. But how do you then develop a form of local rootedness with an open cosmopolitanism? And um, I'm going to do a pitch for a book that's going to come out, huh? uh, uh, that, that, that uh, comes from the series of lectures that I've been giving under the uh, IPS. And I talked about the idea of Singapore and rooted cosmopolitanism, probably, and this is a phrase which I borrow from uh, philosopher Kwame Apaya, rooted cosmopolitanism is probably the way to go, that you still have a sense as a Singaporean where you belong to, who you are as a Singaporean, but you keep a very open connectedness. So identity is not single-dimensional or single-layer. I think there are many, many layers to identity, and that's how I see us going in the future. I've not answered your question fully, but I've tried to uh, address it. Yeah. Keisha, now you can tell us about your book, which is available for sale outside also. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, first, my first comment is that, unlike Heng Chi, I'm a genuine oldie. <laughs> uh, but I must, both were excellent presentations. They, they spoke about times that Kong Ping, you and I have lived through. But my question wants to build on, wants to build on the excellent quote from Ambedkar, 
where he spoke about the contradiction between, on the one hand, getting the political rights of equality and, I guess, the social rights of inequality remaining, but in a different dimension. It's a question to both Professor Prakash and Tayong, which is that even though the political decolonization took place in the case of India in 47, in the case of Singapore, either 63 or 65, even after the political decolonization ended, as Ashish Nandi has documented in the case of India, the mental colonization continued. So many in India continued to look upon, you know, the British as a kind of superior master race or group, or whatever it is. So my question to Professor Prakash is, when did the mental decolonization, you think, effectively uh, happen in, in India? And a more difficult question for Tayong, when was Singapore mentally decolonized? <laughs> or indeed have both countries totally mentally decolonized. Please. Yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, it's referred to the colonization of the mind, uh, that uh, the colonization of the mind is more enduring than any physical uh, colonization. I think, uh, you know, there was uh, an effort um, through the, the 50s, 60s, I think leading up to the movement for the third world and the idea of creating a third space. Uh, there was an effort to break away from the legacies of colonialism in terms of culture and intellectual thought. Um, it was... Uh, you know, it was a difficult uh, process, and I, you know, one could say that it's not complete because colonialism also left certain enduring structures. You know, the education system, for example. I mean, we, I mean, we were educated in India in uh, through a system that was left by the British, and even though uh, in the 70s there were attempts to you know, uh, decolonize it. Uh, but th there is something about those uh, enduring systems that, you know, uh, they persist. Uh, so, but I think, you know, what is important is not kind of a beginning and end point of decolonization, but a kind of a struggle uh, to de decolonize and an awareness that you have to decolonize. And I, I think that's an ongoing thing. Uh, and one could uh, one could make the argument that you know we've made uh, a great deal of progress uh, in thinking about you know decolonizing the mind, uh, perhaps not to Ashish Nandi's satisfaction, uh, but a great deal I think. So Kisha, I'm gonna just be as provocative huh, and ask you back: Was Singapore ever co colonialized? Of course, we were a colony, we were a colony, but our colonial experience is very different from that of India, for instance. Because when you say you colonize a place, it's not just a physical takeover of a space. It's just, as you rightly pointed out, it's the changing of the mind, you disrupt old traditional orders, you, you, you destroy the old ways, and then impose a new set that is alien and foreign to the land. What were our old ways? 
what was replaced by colonialism in Singapore? I mean, if you believe the national narrative, this was a sleepy fishing village, yes, but we've heard in earlier discussions that there was a longer history that went back 700 years. But when the British came, what did they impose on Singapore other than the fact that it rebuilt Singapore as a colonial port city with greater success, further reach? So if we were to use that concept, then I can argue that Singapore was never colonized because what made Singapore were people coming together, different groups of people, building networks, staying connected, and being open, right? But Singapore was a, has been always a very pragmatic place as a result. So when 1965 came and we had to be a nation state, then we had to decide where do we draw best practices from? Of course, it looked to the West, English, technology, R&D, et cetera, et cetera, because that was the most obvious thing to do. Was that a form of new colonization or colonization of the mindset? I don't think so, because what were the other options? What was happening in the East? China was going through the throes of another revolution, a cultural revolution. ASEAN was not doing well. So I think it was a case of just learning from where best practices uh, could be drawn. And then basically when China and, and others rose, basically then you, you, you learn from them. So the whole idea is constantly openness, constantly reinventing, adaptation. And I think that's more accurate description of the Singapore story rather than a colonial, post-colonial dichotomy. I've not answered your question because I'm skirting it, but if you can then debate with me later on whether Singapore was colonized, then we can have another discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, gentleman in the back, please. Please. Um, hi, I'm a student from NUS, and I have one question for Dr. Prakash and one question for Dr. Tan. I'll try and be brief. Um, Dr. Prakash, like, you mentioned that like, the shift towards a nation state from like, a federal like, model of protection of minorities like, was a definite trend among decolonized states. However, like, um, is there, do you think there's something different about like, the region of Southeast Asia, like we have uh, states, for example, like Burma and Indonesia, where prominent like minorities and uh, were like present in the, like, the system without ever being quite like cast out. And in fact, like despite being like pivotal centers of like nationalism in the 1910s to 1930s, for example, the Chinese diaspora, like we have a general shift to like the acceptance of a, a supra-racial like a national identity. Do you think there's something different about Southeast Asia like that made this possible? And what do you think it holds for our future? Um, for Dr. Tan, like, do you think there's something about the political legacy of like, leftism, particularly in Singapore, that we could do more to acknowledge? And like, why do you think it has not yet been covered? Thank you. Thank you. Please. Yeah. Um, I would say that you know, Singapore is, of course, a very different case uh, in the sense that after <clears throat> Singapore becomes uh, a city-state in like, 1965, it is able to manage uh, its various uh, ethnicities in a way that are not antagonistic. I mean, there are always tensions in, in any multiracial societies, but it doesn't lead to a kind of an explosion. But you know, if, in other Southeast Asian countries, I mean, you take uh, Indonesia uh, or you take uh, Burma. Uh, I mean, in these places, the movement towards a nation state was always accompanied uh, by <clears throat> ethnic tensions and an idea of creating uh, <clears throat> uh, a kind of a homogenous nation state. I and mean, I think the challenge 
for <coughs> all these post-colonial nations, uh, and they tried to do it to uh, different degrees, is to develop a form of civic nationalism that would accommodate different communities, uh, different religions. Uh, and one could say that you know, this idea of civic nationalism, underneath it, there were all sorts of you know, ethnic ideas there. To a large extent, one could say that up until the 70s, uh, this idea of civic nationalism, uh, drawing from ideas of constitution, law and order, and, and so on, uh, were largely successful. It breaks down uh, around the 70s. And you see in Sri Lanka, the Sinhalese majoritarianism emerges at that time in India. Uh, Hindu, uh, Hindu majoritarianism begins to you know, raise its head in the late 70s. Uh, in Pakistan, you have, of course, you know, the Punjabi nationalism and leading to the formation of Bangladesh and so on. So there is an experiment towards <coughs> sort of civic nationalism once you know, decolonization moved towards nation state, but you know, it doesn't succeed anywhere. I mean, I, I find in that sense, the Singapore experiment is almost unique. Okay, uh, thank, you thank you for your question. I, I, I'll say this. History writing, history writing, like history, changes with time. So uh, if you look at the history of history writing in Singapore, in the 70s, the Singapore government wasn't really interested in history. Progress is more important. You had to look forward, can't look backwards. And then this started to change in the early 80s when the Singapore government decided that our young were not understanding our history. They didn't know the struggles that the first generation leadership had gone through. Then national education was introduced and then these exhibitions and all. But the, the message at that time was a, a consistent, almost a single trajectory kind of history where Singapore had overcome the odds, these phrases you will see in a lot of our history books, moving from um, colony to nation. It was one direction, and it was led by the valiant PAP. And they had the uh, wherewithal, the guts, the conviction to fight against what they called the communists, the communalists, and so on. So that was a national narrative that many of us grew up understanding. But this is not sufficient anymore, in my personal view because history is actually more complex than that. And as more research happens, we're going to see more nuanced approach. And I think that should be welcome. And I think it's important because the, 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 the plurality of the 1950s and 60s otherwise would be lost forever if people didn't recount their own versions. And then you have biographies of uh, the actors writing about their own stories. You can agree or disagree with them, but that's okay. The point is that the stories are being told. And historians then have to do rigorous, honest work, unearthing materials to write a more nuanced and balanced approach. And that's what I would advocate for the young if you really want to do history. Now, some people have asked me whether I agree with revisionist history or not. And I say, all historians are revisionists because that's what we do with new interpretations, with new materials. We revise, we push back the, 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 the boundaries of knowledge. We revise, but do it responsibly, do it with intellectual honesty, and that's what. And then you open up, I think, the stories that you want to hear about of the left, the right, and, and, and everybody in between. And I think that is something that we need to get to at some stage in our history writing. 
Thank you. Can I take your point then here? Then there's a gentleman back there, and there's a further gentleman, I think, who's sat down, but I hope you haven't given up, so we'll go around and get to you. I would, I would suggest if the panelists could try to be a little bit brief in your replies, because we're beginning to be, um, we have a lot of very interesting points, and we'd certainly like to be able to get everyone's questions. Uh, yours, please. Um, good afternoon, sirs. I have one question today for Dr. Tan about the future of Singapore. Uh, looking back at Singaporean history, we see uh, the great disruptive and existential crisis we faced with the threat of the communists. Uh, in the future, given the uh, rise of populism in the West and the potential for disruptive external forces, how do you think Singapore would be able to stem the tide, uh, not just by embracing new technologies, but also in terms of its social fabric? Thank you. You want to no, no, talk? go ahead, answer that, and well, then we'll get you know, to it. Uh, has said that I'm a historian, not a policymaker, so maybe I shouldn't answer that, but I'll try. Uh, I think the idea is really to try to, try to strengthen the social fabric of Singapore, as you say. You know? And Singapore, being a small, open, global city, will always be exposed to all these influences. You can't turn inwards, so you're always there. Now then, the point is, how do you then buffer and buttress yourself against populism that seeks to divide? And this, I don't have a simple answer, but it's got to be work in progress, a belief in this place, a belief that, you know, there's a, it's a, this is a multi multicultural place where we all have a, a space. And then engagements, I think that's very important. But if people were to polarize and go different ways, then I think that breakup will definitely happen. I, I, as I said, I don't have a simple answer, but that's my kind of rhetoric, uh, if, you, if you were. Please. Thank you. Anne Lee from NUS. Thank you for both of you. It's been a very splendid morning. I wondered whether Taeyong would agree that behind all the processes he described, there's the British election of 1945, which I vividly remember. Uh, everyone expected the war hero and the imperialist uh, Churchill to become the next government. To everyone's surprise, the Labour Party got in, and their pro program was uh, to decolonize by, first of all, clearing up and organizing, and then handing over to friends. Of course, they mishandled the INA so badly they had to scuttle out of India without seeking the problems. But in Singapore, uh, they did try to do it in this way. But I think one thing also perhaps Taeyong would agree with me, 1959 election produced hysteria among the English educated. And English-dominated companies rushed off to to KL to be safe, and the banks that held property on trust dumped it on the market in a way that led to obscene rises in value later on. Uh, but there really was a hysteria of expecting that the PAP was going communist. 
And I wonder if he feels that that was quite an important point at the time, the split between the English educated and the Chinese educated was so complete. Thank you. Uh, yes, and I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, if you think, if you look at the 19, in 1959, the PAP, they, it, they had to win an election. And uh, following the Randall Constitution, the electorate was expanded, and you couldn't just depend on the English educated for the votes. It was a kind of a, a mass electorate now. They had to win the Chinese vote, and that was why there was a, a marriage with the, um, the left wing. But at the same time, uh, the PAP, uh, faction led by Lee Kuan Yew also had to burnish their anti-colonial credentials. And then they were making statements like, you know, uh, how they would in a way be freed from the kinds of control that the British had imposed and the kinds of system that were built to suppress Singaporeans. And I think that caused panic, that caused fear amongst those who believed that the PAP was really going to turn that far left, that they wouldn't have a place in Singapore anymore. Thank you. Um, the gentleman back here, did you move from that position? And, and are there two of you, or is one of them the, no, only you are there, then there, I know there's two of there. The, there was a previous gentleman in a white shirt who was standing up for a very long time and sat down, right at the back there. Do you still wish to say anything, or you've sat down? Or maybe you were standing up all along and <laughs> just observing. Could I then have your, your question, please? Then the two of yours? Uh, the three of you, I presumably, if it's um, three separate, two separate ones, please make it into one. And then the lady back here. It's hard to see who all the people, because everyone is wearing black, including the people who are standing by the mics. So yours first, and then two of you, and then you back here, okay? And then finally yourself here. Okay, please. My name is Bin Hui. I'm from Singapore Management University. And um, the question I want to ask is actually relating to what uh, Mr. Kishore just mentioned about mental decolonization. And so this is an observation that uh, some of my, my schoolmates have made as well. Uh, 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 and for me, it's something that's uh, very relevant. It's that in the Singapore education system, when merit is dispersed to the most excellent students, we always see that the most excellent, they get opportunities to study overseas. And there is a cultural normativity that the best education lies overseas. But at the same time, we also see Singapore lauded as an educational hub, uh, not just in the primary and secondary school sector, but even in the ed uh, when, we're, when we're looking at universities, we have laudable programs like the Global Schoolhouse Program. So why is there this dissonance of us uh, as students having the need to go overseas as a more prestigious uh, like having a more prestigious education overseas than here locally in Singapore. Good point. Uh, and that was an observation on your part, I presume, right? But you didn't make the more important observation, and that is that they should all just come to SMU. <laughs> I forget, I'm in enemy territory. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Excuse me for all of that. We'll quickly jump to this question here. Please, on your part, please. You're being partisan. <laughs> Uh, thank you both professors. Uh, I would like to ask, um, Professor Tan made it clear that he ascribed agency to the British in deciding when and how they were going to decolonize, but both presentations also make it apparent that local leaders really capitalized on and even used the opportunity of decolonization to push their own interests. So in reference to the Guardian article I called Singapore a success project of colonization, 
I would like to ask, how would you weigh the importance of choices of colonial powers versus the importance of choices of post-colonial governments and leaders in determining the relative success of uh, decolonization in Southeast Asia? Or at least, what different, what different areas of success would you privilege the credit of either one? Thank you. And the second one, your colleague, please. Good morning, professors. Thank you for taking time to speak to us. My question actually pertains to the idea of national identity. So recently in um, Southeast Asian history classes, we're actually discussing the idea that basically when you try to forge a wider national identity, perhaps the establishment of social stability might preclude yes, um, the establishment of such a wider national identity. So for example, if you're looking at Singapore, the formation of, for example, our CMIO model, which has perhaps reinforced ethnic distinctions and therefore prevented the formation of a wider national identity, which is able to sort of transcend ethnic boundaries and ethnic classifications. So do you think it is true that in, for example, Southeast Asia or in the wider um, world environment, the establishment of social stability has precluded the formation of a wider national identity? Thank you. Okay, please. Would you like to take up? Okay, uh, I think that question on, on um, agency, uh, I think it's becoming very clear if you read the history of decolonization in Southeast Asia that um, not one side was driving the full agenda or the pace or the content of decolonization. Um, earlier historiography suggests that the, the, the colonials, uh, the European powers controlled everything and the local agencies did not play a part. But now increasingly it's becoming evident that it was a kind of a negotiated pace. While the, the broad framework was in a way determined by the departing colonialists, I think local agencies, you know, the, the local politicians, local forces, local groups had a big impact on the nature and content of decolonization. And if you look more closely at uh, Malaysia and Singapore, you see that there were negotiations where interests had to be protected on all sides, and that, that was the negotiation that was going on. On um, nation building and existing structures, I think these structures will evolve, it will evolve. I think uh, they had a part in the 1970s, in the 1980s, but there'll be new challenges, uh, new environments, and I think the CMIO uh, example that you brought about may have to be expanded or even disbanded. I'm not sure what will happen, but the point is that it, while it served a purpose in classifying people into certain races uh, for purposes of housing education, things have become much more complex now, and whether that model still works, I don't know. I just wanted to add this thing about <coughs> decolonization. Uh, the question of uh, decolonization is never absolute, and one could argue that even when we were colonized, there was always a post-colonial that was part of it. Um, and in fact, you see this uh, among the colonial powers. They are afraid and they're haunted by this idea that somehow their colonial hegemony is not complete. Uh, that the people are entertaining, you know, alternative ideas. I mean, this happens, for example, even in conversion movements where uh, someone has converted to Christianity, uh, but has he really converted or is he just saying it? Okay. So there is an element of post-colonial that is always part of the colonization. So the question then becomes not an absolute one when we have arrived at uh, a moment of decolonization, but each generation and each stage actually defines for itself what is uh, required for decolonization. Thank you. We have uh, a few minutes left only, so I just want to make sure uh, that I've got everybody who's got questions to ask. The lady there, gentleman here. 
Is there anyone else I've missed out at all? No, there's a lady standing there. Raise your hand. Yes, this one. The gentleman here. Two only. If there's anyone else with a question, because I'm going to get you all to summarize. Um, anybody else, let me know. No, then in that case, could you ask your question, followed by yours immediately, and then we'll have the panelists basically answer both questions. Please. Um, so thank you very much for your insightful presentations. Uh, my name is Vibhuti Vijay. I'm a student at the United World College, Southeast Asia. And I suppose my question has sort of a dual approach. So first, from the historical perspective, um, it's very specific, but I'm curious to know your thoughts on Indian non-alignment and if it was a consistent practice and if it was able to be upheld with integrity by both uh, Indira Gandhi and Nehru. Um, and I guess linking that to the modern approach, in today's increasingly globalized and an interdependent world, um, where arguably at the same time there's sort of this rise of the right and greater populism, um, is something, is a policy to the, to the nature of non-alignment uh, something viable or even something to look towards in order to protect the integrity of states and their diversity, or is it something that should be perhaps avoided? Thank you. Please. Thanks, Chairman. Uh, my name is Theophilus, and Professor Prakash, as a writer myself, I appreciated the contrast that you drew earlier between the administrative voice and the popular voice in the post-colonial era. And as you suggested, the post-war structures and institutions that developed in the newly independent states of Southeast Asia, some of which still govern us today, largely represented a balance between these two voices, the administrative voice and the popular voice. So I want to ask, what is your take, um, to both panelists, what is your take on the current generational shift in the politics of Southeast Asia? Some years ago, we saw mass demonstrations in Thailand and the Philippines. Closer to home, we have Bursa in Malaysia, and the current student demonstrations in Indonesia. In a characteristically, perhaps more muted way, we also have renewed questioning here in Singapore. So to both speakers, do you see at this point a new rebalancing of the administrative and popular voices in Southeast Asia? And if it doesn't yet amount to that, then what would it take? I, I'll answer the last question a little bit, and then I think non-alignment I'll leave to Gyan. I think it's inevitable. The, the way the world has changed, you know, and look at uh, how social media has changed things. Um, this generation, and I, 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 I work in a college, I encounter young people every day, you know, the way they think, the way they uh, relate to things happening around them are very different from one generation ago. They have different aspirations, and an old playbook um, may not work with this group of people. I think there has to be some um, change, some adaptation, and I think it behooves leaders, not just in Singapore, from all over this, this part of the world, to really understand that and see how they can engage better and maybe adapt their playbook to deal with these changing aspirations. Uh, just with reference to non-alignment, I think in its inspiration, non-alignment was not about neutralism. It was, uh, in fact, articulating a, a different uh, view of the world in which I call world changing you know that was part of that spirit now it in a way becomes uh, irrelevant with the idea of the non-aligned itself breaking up in the 70s first with the oil crisis and then by the failure of the new economic order uh, and also of course with the end of the Cold War so this idea of you know 
um, staking out this kind of third space um, and not aligning with any, any of the two uh, becomes kind of moot after that. Thank you. Uh, we've come to the end uh, of the session today. Instead of trying to wrap it up, I'd just like to make an observation, I think, on behalf of all of us, that we owe a special debt to historians, not simply because they provide the context of our understanding the past for which, from which we can begin to unravel the problems of the future, but in particular, as Taeyong has said, and particularly for us in Singapore, we tend to think that there's only one single fixed narrative for our short history as a country. But in the fullness of time, as you've said, a lot more of history is unfolding. The history of Singapore is getting richer, deeper, more nuanced, more complex. And it behooves all of us to understand that historians, as you've said very well, by nature, are revisionists. And that the more revisionism there is, the better there is, because it gives us a greater choice from which we can create our own understanding of history. I think that's a particular contribution you've given to all Singaporeans so that we have a richer, deeper, more nuanced understanding of our recent past. Can I ask all of you to, to join me in, in thanking our panelists for the discussion today? Thank you very much. Thank you.